don't forget, you're going to die. Welcome to the We Croak podcast. I am your host, Hansa Bergwall, and today uh, we have Katie Butler. She is the author of The Art of Dying Well, uh, a practical guide to a good end of life. She's also written for the New York Times Magazine, The Best American Science Writing, The Best American Essays. She's a wonderful writer, and this is a refreshing conversation about all the practical things to do when you or someone you love is headed toward the old exit sign, because there are many pitfalls which we'll cover, and there's just things you have to know in order not to increase the suffering and in order to make the passing an experience of more love and more togetherness. I think it's actually really, really uh, helpful to talk about these things in just an honest and open way, and I'm excited that Katie Butler is here. And if you're enjoying these discussions on the We Croak podcast, I do encourage you to subscribe, tell your friends, head over to our Patreon, because all of your support helps a lot. And uh, thank you. So without further ado, here is Katie Butler. Thank you so much for uh, joining us, Katie Butler. I really enjoyed your book, The Art of Dying Well. Thanks very much, Hansa. I am really happy to be here with you. And before we dive into your book, I'm really curious if you could tell our listeners a little bit, and me, honestly, a little bit about your background, uh, how you became interested in death and dying, and of course, doing it well. Well, when I was in my early 40s, I lived in a Buddhist community in southern France, and every morning we used to recite, I am of the nature to get sick. There's nothing I can do to prevent getting sick. I'm of the nature to grow old. There's nothing I can do to prevent growing old. And I'm of the nature to die. There's nothing I can do to prevent my death. But in my early 40s, this just all went over my head. I'm living in an advanced, developed country with advanced medical care. None of my siblings had died in childhood. My parents were healthy. And so it just didn't seem very germane to me. And then in my early 50s, my dad had a devastating stroke. He was 79. And he entered this gray zone between active living and active dying, a very prolonged decline, and then ultimately death. And during those difficult years, which were prolonged by the insertion of a pacemaker when he already was developing dementia, I... I I came to realize I didn't understand the landscape of what we were facing. And I really wanted to understand what had gone wrong with advanced medicine, that it had done such a better job at getting us to postpone death rather than to prepare us for peaceful ones. So it was a very strong family experience that set me on this path. I hear that there was this like, cognitive dissonance between that you know, daily stated value of we are of a nature to die, there's no avoiding that, and what you were actually doing in your family at that time under that circumstance. Exactly. And that death was not really an event. It was a process, a fairly long process that sometimes people talk about it as slow and attenuated dying, which is a lot of what we experience in this advanced modern culture. So there's almost a change in the landscape of death as a result of our modern medicine and our advances. And our national, our imagination hasn't really caught up with those changes. 
Wow. Now, so you had this experience with the passing of your father, which was, sounded like it was long, yeah, hard. Mm-hmm. What? When did you actually start digging in and becoming an expert in death and dying, and how how, how did you do it? I was already a journalist, an experienced journalist, and I wrote a piece for the New York Times magazine about this prolonging of the death process. And I did a lot of investigation about the forces within our economy that drive um, medical choices and medical discussion, the existence of these huge lobbies in Washington that push for more medical devices and more treatments, whether or not they really benefit people. So I really dug into it. And I was a little alarmed about writing the piece because my mother and I had actually advocated to have my father's pacemaker turned off, even, and we'd failed. Um, and I was afraid people would judge us very harshly, but the response was the opposite. There was an outpouring of emails. I got more than a thousand emails myself, and it was a most emailed story in the New York Times for weeks. So. I realized that there was this huge modern uneasiness with how we were handling last phases of life. And that led me to get a book contract and then write my first book, which was called Knocking on Heaven's Door after the Bob Dylan song, which explored these issues in more depth, more depth, especially everything that happens to a family, our family, when the patriarch of the family suddenly becomes a dependent and becomes helpless. And how much, how much love I felt for him and showed for him and for my mom and just what a meaningful life stage it was. So I just got into it and then I really felt that the first book was more about problems. And so the second book is more about workarounds, potential solutions, ways to increase your chances of having a good death or at least a good enough death. I also felt there was really a gap because there are the death cafes and the death over dinner movement and there's We Croak. And there are people encouraging us to sign advanced directives where we make our wishes clear. But there's really a huge hole in the middle, which is full of micro decisions and nuts and bolts questions where we haven't really filled out that landscape much. And that was the landscape I wanted to fill out in this book. Yeah, what struck me about your book, which is called A Practical Guide to a Good End of Life, you know, The Art of Dying Well, is that it's just so focused on practical matters. One thing I really appreciated about it is each section of your book, each chapter really, sort of addressed to a particular person. Say, if any of these following things you know, resonates with you, you know, the material in this chapter might be very useful to you now. And it starts out kind of easy with like, if obituaries are starting to become interesting to you, you know, if you're starting to realize that you're aging. Um, so I thought maybe we could start there. Like what, what do you recommend from a practical level that we do, you know, just right now, even if, you know, dying isn't something we're actively doing yet? Yes. My resilience chapter refers to the stage of life where you can still build up your emotional reserves, your social reserves, and your physical reserves, and where you can even reverse and and stop 
a lot of the diseases that are going to create a prolonged havoc toward the end of life really affect your quality of life. In the resilience phase, certain things that were kind of luxuries at early stages of life, like getting to know your neighbors or getting half an hour of vigorous exercise a day, when you get into this resilience phase of just on the edge of starting to become aware of your aging, you could be in your 50s. This is a very good time to shore up all your reserves. It's almost like you're preparing for a trip on the high seas or a mountaineering trip at high altitudes. You, you don't want to leave anything to chance and you want to be as strong as possible when you go into this phase. So it's the phase when you first write your advanced directives, which is just the useful, practical thing to do. But it's a time of getting a lot of exercise, building your social networks, which is probably just about the most important thing that you can do. A little bit more about that one, because I think it's one of the things about advanced directives and medical care or like going to the gym. This predictor of longevity is the, your social health, actually. So I'm wondering if you could just yeah. go into that a little bit more. Well, exactly. And I think it's, for me, the guiding question is not longevity. It's high quality of life in longevity. It's longevity with a minimum of destruction of functionality. Your social networks are just huge on every level. If you do a favor for a neighbor, then when you need a prescription picked up, that neighbor will do a favor for you. I really encourage people to deepen their casual relationships and then take their casual relationships into deeper levels of friendship. I really would encourage older people living alone to really consider having a roommate, even though that seems like a throwback to college days, because you want someone around who cares about you. And if something goes wrong, they are going to be able to call for help. And as you said, there are just study after study showing the health benefits of strong social networks. Wow, cool. So a roommate, that's one practical suggestion. And I like it. And just getting to know your neighbors. You know, so many Americans now live so far away from family. Uh, any other suggestions for creating social health where you are? Uh, there's a wonderful movement called the Villages Movement, where people are consciously organizing neighborhood by neighborhood so that they can age in place in their communities. Another example is my neighbor, Paul, who's now 88, and he keeps a big box of dog treats by the door of his garage where he works in his workshop all day long. And so every single dog in the neighborhood knows him, and he knows all the owners of all those dogs. And so we all, Paul's great now, he's fine. He doesn't need any help from anybody. But if he does need help at some point, a lot of people are gonna know him and be willing to step up and help. This becomes extremely important at the very end of life when people are wanting to die at home and maybe having a slow, prolonged dying process. If you built up a gratitude bank with other people in some way, Maybe you've mentored people or you've taught something or you've been in a group like a group of quilters or motorcyclists or the junior league. It really doesn't matter what the organization is. You, you sort of find your tribe. You find your posse. And then when people are dying, you can actually spread the tasks far and wide. And that way nobody gets overwhelmed and you're much likely to have a meaningful 
and very solid positive experience of death and dying. I have a story in my book about a guy named John Masterson who lived in Seattle and he was a sign painter and he wasn't he wasn't an easy guy. He was very opinionated and always harangued people about politics, but people really loved him. And he was he was into karate. He had people he knew from sign painting, fellow artists. He was also a member of Nishiren Shoshu, which is a branch of Buddhism where people chant. And all of these groups really came together when he was dying of cancer at home. So that there was just this rotating cast of characters who learned how to, how to turn him, how to help feed him, take him to the toilet, whatever it required. And so he had a very beautiful and meaningful death because he could draw on these passions and the social networks that they had created much earlier in his life. Wow, that's, that's really beautiful. Yeah, it was beautiful, yeah. And his sister, his sister was a nurse. And anytime she had to do anything to turn him over or something, she would always just ask whoever was in the room to come over and help. And that way, there was this deep bank of people who knew how to turn him. And so if she wasn't there, there would be someone who knew how to crush up his medication and drip it in his mouth or whatever was needed. I think we're, we think we're more incapable than we are. I think all through my book, I have people who really just rise to the occasion and trust their gut instincts and move forward and improvise in the face of a decline or a death and really do a beautiful job. Yeah, and I think that message is, you know, you can start now building that kind of life where it's just easier. You know, it's, it's nice now to know your neighbors and to give their dogs a dog treat. And it will be nice whenever you may need something if you know all those people. Well, it's interesting. What starts out as just a pleasantry becomes actually a survival skill. So in your next chapter called Slowing Down, you talk about, you know, you're starting to have some more serious health issues rack up, sort of the practical steps that you can take then. And I was wondering if you, you know, could just share with our listeners a couple of the ones that you think are most important or that they least expect. Well, when you when you reach the stage that I'm calling slowing down, you might have the early stages of several different problems. Like you have a minor heart problem or a minor kidney problem, but the theologists in your life are starting to add up. And one of the great problems here, especially in America, is that healthcare tends to get very fragmented at this point. So instead of having one doctor who knows you well in all your dimensions, a lot of people know a tiny slice of you based on a single organ. The great danger here is that this fragmented care, so one of the things to address is if you can find any way to defragment that care, do so. If you are in an area that has a really good HMO like Kaiser, it's really worthwhile to explore entering it or a Medicare Advantage program if you're older. So defragment your care if you can, or find a geriatrician who can be kind of a big picture doctor. A lot of people end up on multiple medications at this point because the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing. And one doctor puts one medication into your panoply, and then you have a side effect that you go to a different doctor for. So the dermatologist gives you a different medication for your itching even though the problem was started by your heart medicine. So, and these things just build on each other. And in the book, I have a woman, 
She's on 22 different medications prescribed by six different doctors and filled at four different pharmacies. So nobody knows what's going on with her. And in the course of a year, she gets weaned off all but five of those medications. And as a result, she's sleeping better. She's getting more exercise. Her mind is much clearer and she is much steadier on her feet. If you're on more than five medications, the the rule of thumb is that at least two of those are interacting with each other or amplifying each other. So it, it's crucial. And I have in the book a whole list of questions you can ask a doctor. You can actually go in for something called a medication review. It's also sometimes called de-prescribing. And you go over each medication one by one and you find out, does this have a side effect that's bothering me? What's going to happen if I just don't take it at all? Is the cure worse than the disease? Would I be better off not to be taking anything? So this sounds like it makes so much sense. It's almost scary because, you know, every ship needs a captain, you know, every one, you know, one guiding force looking at all the stuff, checking for these interactions. Mm -hmm. And yet I know from my own experiences with the American medical establishment that, that we can't take that for granted. And even if we step up and say, I want an integrated, you know, we might not just get it because we said that. Like, how, how do we actually step up and find, like, who do we even ask for to find that one person who's sort of looking at the overall picture and making sure that what we're doing makes sense in all its different parts? It's a terrible failing of our system. And that's why I think of this book it, to say it's really a book of workarounds and partial solutions. There are simply no good options sometimes, unfortunately. But I do think it's a good idea to look for these integrated systems like, like Kaiser, if, if one exists. If not, and you've got the money to think about being part of a concierge health practice, usually run by an internal medicine guy, you may have to pay a couple of hundred a year or even a couple hundred a month. But these are doctors who've decided to dedicate themselves to taking the time that's necessary. And they have to figure out a funding mechanism that works for them because the pre present healthcare system really doesn't have a good funding mechanism for this. Now, is this something a primary care physician, could you ask them just to review all the things you're doing? Or is that oh, really absolutely. something they're capable of? Absolutely. They're an, an ideal point person, but they're often very stressed, and especially because they now have to have electronic medical records, which makes it even worse. But you just, you'd say, you'd set up an appointment for a medication review and for no other purpose. And also, if you're on Medicare, take advantage of all the wellness appointments that Medicare lets you have. It lets you have a an appointment every year to discuss your advanced healthcare planning, your plans for if you do get sicker. And I say, or your yearly checkup, I say, take advantage of each of these in order to try to form a real social bond with your doctor so they actually care about you and know you as a whole person. And this can be, I'm, I'm sorry to say it, this can be pie in the sky in a lot of areas, but at least in some of these really good Medicare Advantage programs like Geisinger is another one, Intermountain Health in Utah is another one. They're scattered throughout the country, and if you can access them, that's great. If you have a well-integrated regional healthcare system that was started by people with altruism in mind, often these little places have very good 
reputations also. I, I agree with you. We've got to face the limitations. A lot of people are not going to have this. There are also professions developing to be these people. There's healthcare advocates. There are medical advocates. There are geriatric case managers. All of these people can help. And there are some smaller Medicare prototype programs that are being funded, physician house call programs, for instance. So the book is full of detail about options like this, but I wish we I wish I could say we had a well-organized national system where nobody fell through the cracks, but we really don't. Yeah, but I like how your book is full of workarounds in the system we have today. Like it's practical. And I like what you're saying about, you know, you can make use of all the different kinds of ways you can book an appointment. Because I know from, you know, the rest of the chapters we're going to discuss that a big part of your book and the practical suggestions you have are basically how to reclaim a lot of your agency as you become more vulnerable and head toward the end. We got to stay away from regarding ourselves as a bundle of diagnoses and keep thinking of ourselves as full human beings with an emotional life, a spiritual life, a social life, a life of passions, because we want to live that way as well as die that way. Yes, one of them is really spiritual, which is the more we can accept change, the easier it is for us to respond to it. You want to be grateful to the people who help you and openly grateful and thankful to them. It makes their tasks much, much easier. I think we all fashion our own partial answers at this stage of life. A couple of the things I think are really important is to continue to substitute one activity for another. So for example, when you can't hike anymore, take up swimming if your joints are hurting, keep substituting one thing or another and keep doing what gives you joy. Another is to turn to some people who are often sort of neglected or underrated in the healthcare system, like an occupational therapist. You can get an occupational therapist to come to the house and look around and see if there are fall risks in the house, like clutter that you might trip over. They will help you simplify your life and adapt you so that you can make it safe to continue to live at home. They don't ask you, what's the matter with you? They ask you what matters to you, and they try to help you accomplish it. I really like that. So there's ways to, even at the end, sort of make use of thinking critically about space with professionals who have as much mobility and quality of life as you can as you adapt. So getting into, I think, parts of your book that really wowed me for the amount of detail that I'd never heard before, even reading a lot of books about end of life, your chapter of awareness for mortality. And you know, this, this chapter and it's the people it's addressed to, I think, is really important and special. It's addressed to people who you know, are diagnosed with a terminal illness. Um, and then you even go in and talk about some of the euphemisms people use for that, because you can't trust 
you know, all doctors to tell you that you have a terminal illness. You know, there's certain catchphrases and euphemisms, like they want to talk about goals of care, which might mean the same thing. And I was wondering why, why you felt like you had to do that. I think medicine has become a foreign subculture to us. It is so full of technical language and euphemisms to the point that they've softened the blow for us to the point where we don't even understand what they're saying. Even the use of the word prognosis, which just really means an, a forecast, an outlook, it's really a term of art within medicine because it usually means poor prognosis, which means a disease that we don't have a cure for. Similarly, if you're in the ICU, they may talk about multiple organ systems failure, which is usually just shorthand for dying. It means your vital organs are shutting down. Or this phrase, goals of care. What that really means is we need to have a discussion about what is realistic for you to expect medicine to be able to do with your condition at this point. And we need to talk to you about what really matters to you now that this is the case. So it's a combination of a hard dose of reality conversation and a real exploration of what deeply matters to you. Only 23% of people want to live as long as possible, no matter what. The others care a lot more about things like leaving their relatives relatively untraumatized, being at peace spiritually, having people who love them around them, and not being a financial burden to their families. So it's very important in these goals of care conversations to start to speak up, if not beforehand, about what really matters to you and what really concerns you and what fears do you have. For example, I talk in the book about, you may need to ask, what's it like to die of my illness and what can be done to soothe my symptoms? A lot of people have these fears and need to know this information, but they're afraid to ask. I even have a glossary in the back of the book because I feel like advanced medicine is like entering a foreign land and you need a phrase book. So there's a glossary that explains what some of these medical terms of art actually mean. Well, you see, we talk about, I mean, I'm really glad that you're saying how practical the book is, but I'm a very spiritual person actually. And I really believe if you create a foundation of the practical, then the more emotional and spiritual issues can also be addressed. But if you're in a chaotic situation or you're dying in a, you know, in a hospital, in a bad situation, you may never get to your emotional or spiritual issues because the practical are just going to rear their ugly head and dominate the entire space. Hey, Hansa. Thanks so much for doing such a great job with the interview so far. How do you think it's going? Ah, uh, shucks. I hope it's going well. I've got I a quote cool for you. So. Oh, I'd love to hear it, please. Well-being is attained by little and little, and nevertheless is no little thing itself. And that's by Zeno of Citium, who was the first Stoic philosopher who founded the school and uh, is also the namesake of my one-year-old Boston Terrier, Zeno. No little thing either. Oh my gosh. 
he is a little thing, but he's a big thing in my house. Uh, he's always running around. Yeah, so how can listeners support uh, the We Croak platform if they're enjoying the app or enjoying uh, the podcast? You know, We Croak has so many amazing new outlets here in 2019. You know, there's, of course, the, the app, the uh, adventure that started it all. So be sure to check that out if you haven't on both iPhone and Android. But our new thing that we'd really love you to have a, just a quick look at, if you don't mind, is our Patreon page, which you could find at WeCroak.com. We've got a bunch of cool stuff on there. It's a great way for you to um, connect and see the latest things that Hansa and I are working on. And if you are so inclined, we would love your financial support as well, to which we would return the favor in the form of some cool Patreon rewards. Yeah, uh, I think that you should totally do that. And uh, without further ado, here we go back to today's conversation. You have a great quote in here about how death tends to, you know, wed, like birth, wed the, <laughs> yeah. the spiritual with the animal. And I thought that was really um, important phrase. And, you know, one of the things that really, you know, really changed how I look at dying after reading your book was this question about talking to your care doctor when you get a diagnosis of, you know, how does it usually go? Because you actually share in illustrated charts four different common trajectories of dying. And, you know, there are some diagnoses that are just probably going to go one way or another, and you should know and plan for that. And other times when you get some say in your selection of care to push yourself into one or another. And I wonder if you could just describe these four to us, because I think, you know, they're really important. You know, they're, you call it the Niagara Falls trajectory. Yes. We all want the Niagara Falls trajectory, which is staying at the highest possible quality of life and function as long as we can, and then going over the waterfall really fast to a quick, to a quick decline and death. This is the pattern for, for example, a cancer that's treated once and then returns, and then you don't do subsequent treatments. That can be the pattern. If you have kidney failure and you do not go on dialysis, that can be the pattern. We all want that, but a lot of us don't get that. A lot of us get, for example, looping decline. This is if you have, let's say, heart failure. You may go in and out of the hospital. You may have crisis after crisis, and you may not know exactly which crisis is likely to be the last one, but the general trend is kind of like a stock market chart going down. Uh, the general trend is down. You get to decide where on that trend going down, you want to shift to what's called comfort care only, or to go on hospice, or to try to get your medical care at home and say you don't want to go to the hospice, that you don't want to go to the hospital anymore. So you have some say over how prolonged the very tail end of that chart is going to go. Then I also have the stair step down. This is what my dad suffered. He had vascular dementia. So he would have a period of plateau and then kind of a collapse, maybe a second stroke, and then another plateau and another drop down. And this pattern also gets repeated if you put someone repeatedly in the hospital for like those minor, so-called minor procedures that go wrong. 
they will come out of the hospital having taken a major stair step down in their capacities, their ability to function. And then finally, there's the dwindles. And this is what happens with people who have dementia, uh, maybe a whole collection of relatively minor conditions. They just kind of gradually fade away. There's no grand crisis. And they just kind of quietly get less and less functional and withdraw inwardly more and more, take less interest in life, and then sometimes die in their sleep. And again, if you're on any of these trajectories, there comes a point where it's a good idea to have a do not resuscitate order so that you don't put someone who's clearly in these fading stages of life, you don't put them through these traumatic resuscitations that actually usually fail and cause tremendous emotional and physical havoc. Yeah. And it's important to know these trajectories so that you can plan for them. And also, sometimes you have a choice. You tell the story of a, a cancer patient who goes to one very famous uh, cancer doctor, and he gives her like a heroic um, measure that would lead to maybe a looping decline at best in terms of discomfort. And then another doctor, you know, not as well known, but... Yes, I love this story because she was stage four. And the first doctor just said to her, here's what we're going to do. And it was chemo and radiation and a mastectomy and then more chemo. And she just thanked him for his time and left and never went back. The other doctor said, what do you want to accomplish? And there is just a world of difference in those two approaches to medical care. She ended up just going on an estrogen suppressing. getting you know the most from the time that they had exactly it's it's really a beautiful story her name is amy berman and she lives in new york city wow um and then there's other realities of death you know the the dwindles for example i just have a grandmother that passed away very recently yeah. very slow decline with alzheimer's and dementia um you did you know round the clock you know uh health aid uh, for a couple of years at the end and you know didn't recognize me in the last couple of years when i came to visit her although when i told her who i was she would know who that was and you know it's a pretty hard way to go but uh but you know it's inevitable that some of us do and you have recommendations for you know the caretakers who you know who are dealing with people in that that stage yes people often don't know what to do in terms of what medical treatments to allow or not allow for people that they love who are perhaps in a locked ward somewhere with dementia. But I think it's important to remember that dementia itself is also a terminal illness and that comfort care only is often the recommended course. I've actually included in the book a dementia directive that I've written. It's a letter to the people who make who may make my medical decisions if I can no longer make my own. I really want to free them from the burden of uncertainty and guilt and make it very clear that 
as a fully functioning person now, I care about how they feel and what their lives are going to be like. And so I've made it very clear that if I have dementia and can't make my own decisions, I don't want anything standing in the way of a natural death. I don't even want antibiotics. I'd like pain managed with painkillers rather than addressing an underlying illness with antibiotics. So I really want to clear the pathway for the closest as possible to the Niagara Falls trajectory. I want to go over that waterfall as fast as I can. And of course, there are no guarantees that it will be fast, but at least I don't want it unduly prolonged by inappropriate interventions like dialysis or feeding tube or, or anything that might cause me additional misery. Yeah, you have this quote, which you know, I think is just one of those reckoning with the reality we're in moments, you know, with practical workarounds, like you said, where you say, it may help you retain your agency and your moral authority if you understand that financial incentives hidden from your view often promote over-treatment. Yes. And I think the most stunning of them all is the fact that oncologists are paid largely through the markup on the chemotherapies that they administer. It's a 4.6% markup, and it is the major source of their income. This means we are creating a system where there is a financial incentive to give chemo long after it is no longer useful and to use the most expensive chemo. I'm not saying that doctors are venal, but all of our behaviors are shaped by incentives. And I think we should just be paying oncologists much, much better for their time so that they can have meaningful conversations with patients about where things are headed and not pay all this money on the basis of what they administer. To me, it's just absolutely shocking. It's a, it's a ridiculous way to pay doctors. Yeah, I mean, I didn't know that. It is shocking and also freeing in the sense that, you know, whether you are a caretaker or coming into the end of yourself, you just, you have to expect that you're going to be recommended many expensive and heroic treatments that lead to um, perhaps a lot of suffering, such as chemo. And, you know, really look at it with someone who you trust, you know, hopefully you have that, you know, captain or, you know, one care doctor looking over all of it and who can help you decide what's important to you. And if not, to ask to put a palliative care doctor on your team. This is really their specialty. These difficult medical decisions, this is their specialty, telling you about what you can realistically expect, helping you shift your horizons so that you, let's say you're not going to make it to your daughter's graduation. Well, you can write a letter for her that she can open on the date of her graduation. They, it's a really beautiful medical specialty. So I highly recommend that. Yeah, and then I think one of the issues which you you tackle in your book, it's like a fight or flight response. They can't imagine what to do besides, you know, fight it with everything they have or, you know, run away and pretend it isn't happening. And uh, you have this, this quote of like, below are some hopes and some rites of passage to consider in place of a futile war on death. People do beautiful things. They... One man in my book reviewed all his World War II experiences and made a giant map of every battleship that he'd been on. 
other people visit old relatives to say their goodbyes without actually saying goodbye. You can write letters for your loved ones to open on these landmark occasions. You can come to terms with what your life actually meant. And then you can fulfill these beautiful emotional tasks of the end of life, which I'm sure you've probably discussed before on your program. Thank you. I love you. Please forgive me. I forgive you. And goodbye. In my book, I have the story of a woman named Kathy Doobie who'd been at war with her mother all of their adult lives because her mother had been a violent alcoholic who'd never told her she'd loved her. But when her mother was dying and actually said, don't come to Kathy, I don't want to see you, Kathy came anyway, and the two women looked at each other, and the mother said, I love you, and I'm sorry. And Kathy just said, I love you, and I'm sorry. And that was the entire conversation. It was almost like a haiku. But many of us intuitively complete some version of these emotional tasks as we are in our last year or two of life. Really beautiful. And I love the idea of you know, actively choosing a project or two. Of just how do I make you know, the people I care about know that? You know, you know, write letters you know, to so-and-so on the date of their graduation or uh, marriage or this or that, knowing that you may not be there for them. Exactly. And a friend of mine who's a, an oncologist says, when people come in and they say, I'm a fighter, because a lot of people say, I'm a fighter, or you don't know my mom, she's a fighter. But these doctors do know our illnesses very well, even though they may not know us. And he says, he tries to shift the conversation to like, well, what else could you fight for? Could you fight for leaving your family in good shape? In my book, I have a story of a man who was highly trained in Japanese carpentry, that it was very important that he finish renovating the place that his widow was going to live in after he died. So we can turn that fighting spirit towards things that we can actually achieve rather than this unrealistic tilting at windmills, which I think our modern medicine has actually made worse because there are so many promises and it's hard for us to realize when those promises actually become false promises. Yeah, of course. So speaking of that, you know, we have that active, you know, dying when it's a few years out, we can still accomplish things. And then we have the real end times when we are in our deathbed. And, you know, what's your couple practical surprising takeaways for that final work of dying, both for you're there yourself and for the, the people at bedside? There were a couple surprises for me. One was that a home death isn't possible for everyone, and we need to forgive ourselves if that is not what ends up taking place. You do need a deep bank of friends and relatives to help out to do a good home death if it stretches over a very long period of time. So if we do die in hospitals and nursing homes, I think it's so important to just take command of the space just step up and make changes in the environment to make it more sacred. You can ask to have telemetry and beepers and monitors turned off, TVs turned off. You can bring in a battery-operated candle. They're actually very realistic, and they really create a sacred feeling 
So you can put that by the bedside, maybe with some flowers or a photograph, so that you can really create a sense of vigil and even hominess in this quite unhomey environment. You can ask for a private room at the nursing home. A lot of people in nursing homes die with somebody else in a bed almost right next to them. And this is, again, this is inhumane, and at least you can ask. I've had friends who actually got the person dying wheeled out of a dark windowless room in an ICU and put into a brighter room. They queued up his playlist on his iPhone, put little speakers in the room, circled him, held him as he was dying so that they created a sense of ritual and community, even in circumstances that were far from ideal. The other greatest surprise for me was a death in the ICU that was the most sacred of any death that I came across. It was under pretty horrendous circumstances. The mother was dying after a major heart attack. She was not conscious. But she was sitting there with her son and her long-term caregiver, who'd been telling the son the story of her last weekend, which she had played in bridge tournaments in Las Vegas, even though she was in a wheelchair. And the son said that after she died, he felt the whole room filling up with a loving presence that he absolutely could not identify and that was much bigger than any sense of his mother while she'd still been alive. So there was this amazing mystery that entered the room, totally unexpected, in bad circumstances. And this just gave me faith that however much practical planning I do do, or that I suggest other people do, there are going to be these opportunities for transcendence and meaning and community and holiness even that we can't predict or even explain. There may be a nurse that steps up. Weddings have been held in ICUs. Medical staff suffer when death in the hospital becomes so unhinged from the personal or from the sacred. And they have created their own rituals to help us. So I don't know exactly where we are going to find the help that we need, but I do have faith that for a lot of us, it's going to show up and it's going to show up in forms and in spaces that we couldn't even have predicted. Yeah, I really liked your section on how to make a hospital death more humane, more soulful, more like a rite of passage if you happen to end that way. And it reminded me actually of a story I heard of um, a death in a hospital where a man and his family hired a, a death singer, which uh -huh. a, a wonderful you know, soprano to come in and talk to the family, select some sacred music, come to the bedside and just sing. Yes, there's a group called the Threshold Choir, which has volunteers around the country and they will come and sing at the deathbed, a group of two or three. You might even just, a friend of mine says she'll never forget the look on her dying mother's face when she put headphones on her and played Frank Sinatra. Another guy that I know of died in a similar circumstance, but the music he was playing was 
on the road again with Willie Nelson. Yeah, they say that hearing is the last sense to go. I heard the story of you know this uh, this deaf singer and the music she gave that it was a really special experience both for the man that was dying and uh, the, their family that was also present. Yes, absolutely beautiful. I think it just needs to make sure it fits the tastes of the dying person, though. You know, you don't want to bring harp music or Buddhist chants in for someone who's not going to like either one of those things. <laughs> no, in consultation with the family, of course, and people who know best. But, you know, it's about, like, you don't expect to hear your favorite music sung aloud or even, you know, in a microphone in a hospital. You expect to hear that, like, beep, beep, beep. Exactly. But when you really think about what you want to experience at the end, you know, you do have some say in what happens. You know, there's there's a certain power in, you know, you're dying, you know, you're going to bring in a singer to the hospital. They'll, they'll usually let you. And just to loop back for a minute to a home death, one of the things that I noticed is that often family members get afraid of giving enough morphine because they become afraid that they're literally, quote, killing the person. And I just want to really encourage people to get over that fear. Uncontrolled pain is a major barrier to a peaceful death. And if you're advancing the death at all, it's usually by a couple minutes. We're not talking about anything major. If you have fears about it, it's really important to talk to the hospice people about it and get some really clear information from them because you, you want to feel free to give enough morphine so people don't suffer. Yeah. One of the most most read stories on the New York Times this last month uh, was this uh, what to say and what not to say to someone who's grieving. And it's all about like just how much people are like don't even know what to say when someone suffered a loss. And I think terminal diagnoses, dying, you know, it's just it's the same sort of thing. Like people um, who might like to help out don't you know even know what to say or what to do with people going through this. And I was wondering if you had any of your own advice in that kind of that moment of, you know, what what to say to people when you find out that um, they're going to go bedside to someone who's dying? Well, it depends on where you're in in the dying process because you really have to feel out the person. If they've just gotten a terminal diagnosis, the thing I would do was say, what is this like for you? And just listen. Don't jump to any conclusion about where they are on the journey. Some people are going to fight like hell. Some people, I have a friend right now, he had a bad diagnosis. He got chemo. It looked like he was heading for death's door. And then he got put on immunotherapy and he's back at work. He's really doing well. So we can't prejudge it or think we're going to know exactly what this trajectory is going to look like even if we're informed, like me. So I think that question of what's it like for you is really important. The other thing that's really important is simply doing things for people rather than asking what you should do. Like instead of saying, let me know if I can help, say something like, can I bring you dinner? Or text somebody when you're at the supermarket and say, I'm at the supermarket. Can I drop off some vegetables for you? Take the dog to the vet for them. Mow the yard. Just look around and see what needs to be done. Drop someone a note saying that you're thinking of them. I think it's so important not to impose our language or our expectations on people at this stage, but simply to sort of 
help from the bottom up rather than the top down, not give too much advice. Yeah, I like that idea of just do it because I think when we're really honest, all of us know that asking takes a lot of effort and that's exactly what you don't have when you're dying. Exactly, exactly. In the book, there's the story that I told you about John Masterson who was in Seattle and dying at home. And his sister who was a nurse said, people often kind of wring their hands and say, but I don't know what to do. And she said, but you do know what to do. Just picture yourself in the same situation and ask yourself, what would I need? What would I need done? What would I want to hear or not hear? It's really beautiful. So any last words or things you want to say before we uh, thank you for your time today? Well, I guess I think that there's a natural segue between living well and dying well. And that I think writing the book for me the way it changed my life was not only am I exercising much more conscientiously, but I'm really looking for all the joy and meaning and comfort that I can put into my life now, because I really do think that That's really beautiful. Thank you so much for your time today. Once again, for our listeners, the book is The Art of Dying Well, A Practical Guide to a Good End of Life by Katie Butler. And I would say this is a great book just to have around for reference. We don't always know when we're going to need it (laughs) and when it might be hard to wait for a delivery or go to the bookstore ourselves. And uh Yeah, and I think also maybe a good gift when you really don't know what to say for someone you care about who's going through something like this, uh, either in their family or, you know, friends. And uh, I really enjoyed the book, especially, you know, just how practical and like no holds bar, like this is how you do it. Uh, It was really refreshing. So thank you. Thanks very much, Hansa. I really enjoyed this. Yeah, me too. Thank you. Thank you all so much for joining us this week for our latest episode. We hope you enjoy it as much as we enjoy creating it. See you next time.